The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to a very refreshing hour of business talk. This is Social Selling with Game Changers, presented by SAP. The best-run businesses run SAP. You'll hear from the innovators who know how to use game-changing technologies and business strategies to transform industries. And importantly, they will discuss how these technologies and strategies can shake up the status quo in your company's future and help your organization move in exciting new directions. Now, here's your host and moderator, Bonnie D. Graham. Welcome, welcome, welcome. If you want to run with the Game Changers, I promise you're in the right place. Today's buzz, the times, they are a change, and my goodness, doesn't that hark back to the 60s? But we are fast-forwarding to today, 2016. Let me tell you what this is all about. Social media has not merely changed the way we buy, but also the way companies sell. Established businesses around the world know this. They're very aware that they have to get smarter. They have to get on board with social sales in order to stay ahead of the competitive curve because if they're not doing it and somebody else is, guess who's going to get to the finish line first? We know. However, startling news from Adweek. They report that 61% of Fortune 500 CEOs still have no social media presence. I know it's hard to understand. 61% don't do the math. That means 39% do, and that's not exactly up at the top of the list there. So why so few? What's going on? And most important for our conversation today, what are the implications for what we'll politely call the slow-to-adopt, slow-to-adapt executives and for their companies as social selling continues to dramatically change the large enterprise? A lot to talk about. The speakers are here. The panelists are ready to go, and I'm very pleased to welcome first on the panel is Maggie Fox. She is the Senior Vice President of SAP Experience for Global Marketing at SAP. And Maggie, for her opening quote, has sent me something we've never heard on all of our, I don't know, 1,000 Game Changers radio shows. It's a Latin proverb, and I'm going to do my best to pronounce it correctly, but I do have the English translation. It's Fortuna Audaces Luvat, and if you're scratching your heads, as I was, Maggie kindly sent me the English. It's fortune favors the bold. And let me take this back in history, Maggie, before I, or you explain this. Salvatore Rosa did a painting in 1658 called The Allegory of Fortune, and it shows Fortuna, the goddess of luck, as an allegory. So there you go. And this motto is used by the 3rd Marine Regiment of the U.S. Marine Corps on their regiment insignia, as well as many, many Scottish clans, as well as the Royal Danish Army. Maggie Fox, welcome. How are you? I'm very well, thanks, Bonnie. How are you? I'm fine. What do you think about that little history lesson about your th- your very powerful quote? Did you know all of that, Maggie? You know what? Actually, I have to say that I, I do have to Google. Um, so I did a little <laughs> Googling ahead of time, and I thought I want to find out the origins of this quote, because it is a quote I, I like and I have used before. Um, and I, I thought it was very appropriate, because it's really hard to get a saying, 
that applies, you know, to broad sections of the world, and we work in a global business, so it's it's a nice one that you know, in Western Europe we've got a bunch of people that actually use the quote as well. So it's obviously got lasting power. Very, very interesting. Now, who are the bold? Now, Maggie, I just read information from Adweek that said 61% of Fortune 500 CEOs, and, and here's the wording, still have no social media presence, implying what the heck is going on, what's taking them so long. So are those the bold that are not going to be favored by Fortune? Can we turn that into the, the topic commentary, Maggie? I'm sure that they're bold and favored by fortune in different ways, but I think the reason that that statistic matters is because leadership comes from the top, right? Leaders set examples for their organizations, and if leaders don't feel like social and digital is important to their business, then a lot of people inside the business who don't really understand it kind of get permission to feel that way, too. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. Thank you very much, Maggie Fox. Welcome to Game Changers. We're delighted to have you. And now I'm going to introduce our second panelist. He's been on with us before. It's Chris Boudreau, Digital Strategy Executive at EY and founder of the website Social Media Governance way back in 2009. And I think I have to mention that Chris had something to do with working for military agency. Let's see. Oh, he spent a year in the Caribbean hunting drug smugglers as a U.S. Navy officer. My, my, my. So Chris Boudreau, welcome. And here is an interesting quote Chris has sent us from David Ogilvy. And the quote is, just like Maggie's quote, very, very short, leaders grasp nettles. And I have the origin of that. I'm not going to read it, but I will tell you a little bit about David Ogilvy, who passed away in 1999. He was an advertising executive widely hailed as the father of advertising. In 1962, Time magazine called him the most sought-after wizard in today's advertising industry. And if the name sounds familiar, he was the founder of Ogilvy and Mather. But what's interesting is he went to Oxford and dropped out. In 1931, then he went off to Paris and became an apprentice chef at a hotel. Then he started selling cooking stoves door to door. And his employer said, why don't you write an instruction manual? 30 years later, that manual was called by Fortune magazine, the finest instruction manual for sales ever written. I'm just going to stop there. I don't know if you knew all of that, Chris Boudreau, but here's the quote. Leaders grasp nettles. Tell us what does that mean? And welcome back, Chris. Thanks so much for having me. It's it's great to be back. Thank well, you. I think it I, I think it means that uh, you know true leadership requires us to take on the hard problems uh, on behalf of our team or our organization, and not to shy away from things that might be a little bit thorny, if you will. So, uh, and Dave, I do a lot of work with agency partners um, here at EY, and and so I, I like to spend a lot of time um, in that space, and uh, I think obviously. Ogilvy's uh, has had a lot had a lot to say over his lifetime. That was that was very interesting. Lots of things to learn. So, good person to learn from. Very much. Now, what is your reaction to the quote I read from Adweek that Maggie responded to as well, Chris? What do you think? What's holding them back, these CEOs who, I'm just going to say it, they should know better by now because there are people like you and our next panelist, Kirsten Boileau, and Maggie Fox out there spreading the word on how important this is to big enterprises, which is our topic today. Chris, what do you think? What's holding them back? I think it's a variety of a variety of issues. Uh, it, it it may in fact be that they simply don't understand, or uh, it may be um, consideration for regulatory issues or other kinds of things like that. I, I think it's not always as simple as 
they just don't care or they just don't get it. Um, and I think in any case, whatever the, whatever the reasons are, uh, it usually takes a thoughtful conversation or series of conversations with folks who are that busy and have that much responsibility to figure out not only why should they maybe do it, but what's the right way, because the answer isn't always necessarily immediately obvious. Mm-hmm. Very, very interesting. And and following on Maggie's quote, what's interesting to me, Chris, about leaders grasp nettles, very powerful quote, is that if you don't grasp the nettle carefully and boldly, the toxins will go into your skin and infect you. So you have to really grab it and understand it and be bold, and that's the way to, to get where you want to go. So thank you very much. Very interesting quote, Chris. And now, as I mentioned, we've been channeling Kirsten Boyleau here. She is the Director of Digital Experience at SAP. And Kirsten has sent me a quote from Mark Sanborn, who is, let's see, he's the author of eight only eight books, including the bestseller, <laughs> The Fred Factor, How Passion in Your Work and Life Can Turn the Ordinary into the Extraordinary. And in case you've never heard of it, well, you're among the few because it's sold more than 1.6 million copies internationally. Here's the quote. Your success in life isn't based on your ability to simply change. It is based on your ability to change faster than your competition, customers, and business. Well, that packs a wallop. Kirsten, welcome back. This is your series, Social Selling with Game Changers. How have you been, Kirsten? I have been wonderful, Bonnie. Thank you very much. Well, thank you for assembling such a great panel. So talk to me about this quote from Sanborn. Why does this resonate with you and how does it relate to our our topic on social selling and how it's changing the large enterprise? Well, I I was looking for uh, a quote that would really resonate around the the whole idea of large enterprises and how they lead with social selling. Uh, And I think, or with any, you know, change in business. And I think one of the biggest things is that um, large enterprises almost have a duty or an obligation to lead and to to show uh, the way to, to smaller companies. Um, and when it comes to their competition, of course, when, when we're talking about how uh, to get ahead, how to um, to be better than our competition, we have to, we, there's always changes that need to be made, um, changes in the way we do business, and that's where social selling really comes in. And Kirsten, I'm going to ask you, and thank you for that, I'm going to ask you about your reaction to the Ad Week comment about only 61%, 61% don't have social media presence. What do you think's holding them back? Do you think they're scared? Do you think it's beneath them that it's something for kids, it's something for junior executives, it's something for people who have better things, don't have anything better to do with their time? What, what's your observation? Uh, I actually work with a lot of our executives here at SAP around their social media presence, and um there's a number of different factors. Most, of, I would say that probably the biggest one is time. I don't have time to be on social media because they, they assume, perhaps wrongly, uh, that it takes a lot of time to have a presence on social. And um, <clears throat> so I think that's probably the biggest thing is, is the time. There's some that would say, you know, it's really, you know, serious people don't have, uh, don't spend time on social media. It's not. It's, you know, it's all about celebrities and, and football games and that kind of thing. Uh, but for the most part, I would say it's probably time and then, you know, whether or not people actually have serious business conversations on social. 
And we know that they do, don't we? So that's why we're here today. Absolutely. (laughs) Maggie Fox, I'm going to dial it back to you and ask you, well, I hope it's not too personal a question, but Maggie, on all of our Game Changers series, we'd love to find out a little bit about our panelists. We already know your point of view on this. We know why you're here, but we'd love to know what are you drinking right now during the show or tell me something interesting about, I know you travel all over the world very frequently, the most interesting drink you've ever had. Maggie? Hmm. Well, the most interesting drink I've ever had is something called Kelpiko, which is a Japanese, like, soft drink. And it's, we describe it as milk pop because it's kind of like carbonated milk. So mm. I'm not saying I love it. My son likes it more, like, enough to have it more than once. I'm not in love with it. But what I'm drinking right now is actually I just finished a coffee from a well-known chain where they ask your name every time you order a coffee, and then they write it on the cup. And he said, Megan, and I said, Yep. So I'm drinking coffee out of a cup with Megan on it. <laughs> Sometimes you well, just, just got to give up. Right? You just stopped the show, Maggie. You just stopped the show. Oh, my goodness. And you can mention the brand, but you don't have to. If you, We all know who writes on the cup. Isn't that interesting? Yes, they were certainly paying attention. Maggie, maybe they were busy doing social media while they should have been paying attention to know. you. I don't know either. My goodness. Thank you very much. And thanks for the tip about the milk pop. That was interesting. First time for us. Chris Boudreau, what are you drinking today? Or what's the most fascinating drink you've ever had? I am uh, having a black iced tea as usual. I, um, the most fascinating drink I ever had was um, a tea that I had in Lhasa, Tibet. And I don't remember what it was called, but it was delicious. And, of course, I've never been able to find it anywhere else. (laughs) But it was great. So it goes with the most memorable drinks sometimes, and they're just relegated to that one time, and they're still amazing and will live in memory that way. So such is life, Chris. Thank you very much. And, Kirsten, what are you drinking? Uh, Currently I'm drinking lemon water. But the most interesting drink I've ever had was actually in Colombia in early January tried a fruit tea that is just um, fresh fruit um, then covered with boiling water. And the, it's just fabulous, so uh, sweet and tasty, and the fruit uh, flavors just come are so vibrant. It's really, really good. Mm, I like vibrant and tasty. That sounds very, very good. Guess what? We've been working hard enough. I want to give my panelists a chance to take a sip of whatever is in front of them right now. We're speaking today with Maggie Fox, the Senior Vice President of SAP Experience Global Marketing, and Chris Boudreau, who is now the Digital Strategy Executive at EY. That's Ernst & Young. And Kirsten Boylo, Director of Digital Experience at SAP. Our topic, if you haven't guessed, is how social selling is changing the large enterprise. I'm Bonnie D. Graham. We'll be right back after a very quick break so don't even think of touching that mouse that app that dial michael out when it comes to business you'll find the experts here voice america business network 
Social media is taking sales organizations by storm, and only those who adapt quickly into the new digital world will be around in the future. Social selling is a new tool that has implications to all lines of business, from building the fundamentals in the sales process and getting the content marketing mix right, to building cross-functional teams and building the systems to truly measure the impact of social. Join our experts as they analyze and discuss how social selling is changing the world of business. Social Selling with Game Changers is presented by SAP. Visit www.sap.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Social Selling with Game Changers, presented by SAP. Email your comments and questions to bonnie.d.gram at sap.com. And you're invited to tweet during and after the live show at Twitter hashtag SAPRADIO. Now, let's get back to Social Selling with Game Changers. And welcome back. You're listening to Social Selling with Game Changers Radio. In case you're wondering, we have just launched Season 2. This is Episode 2. And a shout-out to Kirsten Boyleau at SAP, based in Canada, who renewed her series. And we are delighted because this is still such an important topic to our listeners around the world. And Kirsten, of course, happens to be one of our panelists today. Now it's time for the roundtable, and I'm going to ask our guest, Maggie Fox, to lead in with the roundtable. And Maggie, I'm looking at your notes, some very interesting comments here. You talk about digital first mindset. And I'm just going to read a couple of lines here. You say social and digital first means transforming how we do business in the digital economy. The new way of doing business is a convergence from marketing and sales that requires a shift in our mindsets from, here's the kicker everyone, from push to pull. And then Maggie says the lines are blurring. Maggie, take it away. Let me hear what you have to say on this, please. Yeah, I mean, it's what it comes down to is, is we focus a lot on selling to people, right? We're going to sell this to this person. We're going to sell that to. It's done to someone. And the reality is that we need to move to a place where we're helping people buy, right? We, we get studies and numbers from organizations like the Corporate Executive Board did a study on complex B2B sales, and they found that six, or sorry, 57% of the customer decision journey, right, the deciding process to buy something, happens before anyone calls or contacts a vendor, and that's an even really complex B2B sale. So that's kind of a scary number. That's two-thirds of the journey to making a purchase happens without any influence, without any input from the vendor. And so we have to shift from this idea of selling to people in that final 30% when it's probably too late uh, to helping people buy during 100% of that journey. And that's why digital is so important because we know that 80% of B2B sales start with search. Maggie, tell me something. We talked in the opening uh, about, I used the term slow to adapt, slow to adopt in terms of the CEO who, who we might even say they're laggards. Uh, does it necessarily follow that if the Fortune 500 CEO is not on social, that their company doesn't get it, that their company has not converted to what you're talking about, the, the conversion from push to pull? Um, do you think there's a correlation there directly or were we unkind? Well, you know what, I don't think we can be scientific about it, right? I don't think we can say there's absolutely a correlation or causation right, between mm-hmm. the two. Um, you know, however, I would say that as a senior executive, 
that is in charge of transforming the way their organization does business and using tools in digital and social more more often, right, making it more of a priority. I really struggle to see how they would ever feel strongly about it if they have not for themselves experienced what it can do for your network, how it can change your relationships with people, the opportunities you can find by using an online your online network as well as your offline network. Um, I don't want to say I don't want to say absolutely not. You know, you're never going to get it. But at the same time, I mean, if you don't think it's enough, if if you don't think it's worthwhile enough to spend your own time on it, how convincing will you be in telling the other people that they should spend their time on it? Very well put. Just come right out and say it, and you did. I appreciate that. Chris Boudreau, love to hear you comment on what Maggie just started in the opening of our roundtable. What do you see? What do you think? Yeah, I, I mean, I agree with both of the points there. I, I mean, the changes um, from sell to to helping buy are, are certainly happening on the consumer side of the world and the B2B side of the world. Um, I think part of the implications of that are that, especially in social, you have sellers and marketers um, publishing content or interacting with customers and prospective customers all in, you know, in public channels. And, and that's requiring sales and marketing to either uh, collaborate or collide in, in new and inventive ways uh, that they didn't have to before. So I think it's important for leadership to, to, to lead from the front and at least show outward signs that they believe it's important, even if, a, even if an executive doesn't feel that they have time for it. And I'm sure they're all very, very busy. It, it, it certainly sends a signal to the organization when senior executives become active at whatever level uh, they do um, that's important to the organization. Um, so... You know, so I think it's I think it's important for executives to think about and and to to figure out the right way to set that example, uh, because all these these things are affecting everybody in every sector. Agree, very well put. I'm going to ask Kirsten Boyleau to chime in on this. I have some ideas I want to run past the panel, but Kirsten, your thoughts on what Maggie started and Chris's comments, please. Yeah, interesting. From my own experience working with sales leadership, um, there are so many different um, tools, techniques, uh, priorities vying for their attention, and they have to focus on the one that is going to bring them the highest return on their investment when it comes. And, of course, their, their biggest investment needs to be around how am I driving revenue for my team? And so... I think if we really want to to see social selling adopted at large scale within a large enterprise or, you know, um, showing it to the world as to how these things are are actually really returning, giving that return on investment, um, there's lot, there needs to be lots of stories around, you know, this is, and, and hard numbers, you know, if you can show them that the, that the numbers make sense for them, um, as Maggie pointed out, you know, two-thirds of the buyer journey is complete before uh, a, a, a rep ever gets involved. If you can get those numbers across to them and show how that two-thirds of the buyer journey, how, what implication it has on their bottom line, on their, you know, how much revenue they can drive, that will get their, their attention. Um, and and it, I agree with Chris too that the leaders need to lead from the front. They need to show how they're uh, adopting and adapting to the digital world. 
it needs to come from that place of we I think I believe this is important and I want my team to take part because from my experience unless those leaders really, really um adopt it and, and talk about it and make it part of their everyday, their teams will not. Um, it, it all has to come together under that one umbrella of leadership and, and taking part and really making it, wanting to make this change. Because it's not an easy change necessarily to make. Not at all. And I think like, it's, yeah, it's ahead, important Chris. to, um, it's important, I think, to say that, you know, the SAP social selling program and our, our social selling program at EY are among the largest, if not the largest, deployments of social selling in the world. So, yeah, we're coming from a place of having gone through this at very large scale. And, and one of the earliest steps for us um, has been to get our most senior leaders globally uh, active so that they can, they can experience it, they can understand it, they can champion it, and, and they can get the value out of it. And, and part of it, you know, there's a burden on us to, to uh, explain it and articulate the value in a compelling way. We can't, we can't just blame the people who... <laughs> You know, who would say, oh, well, they just don't get it. Well, then, then we didn't explain it well enough, you know. Mm-hmm. Interesting. I, I want to bring up a, a word that I hope is a good word, not a dirty word. The word is authenticity. And let me tell you my reference point, And then I'll, I'll start with Maggie and go down the line, see what you all think. Uh, in the early days of social media, I remember Facebook was the big presence for people in the entertainment industry. And I remember there were some scathing remarks online that, for example, certain politicians or certain entertainers were not doing their own Facebook updates. They were not doing their own tweets. They had hired somebody or assigned somebody to do canned updates, and they didn't even sound like the real person's personality. So my question to the panel is, what if an executive is listening to our show today and they're saying, oh my goodness, I'm really lagging here. They're talking about me. I'm not leading. I'm not showing my organization that we really want to embrace social. I better get out there and do it. But you know, I have a really great admin and maybe she can just write some stuff for me and put it out there and it'll be good enough. Maggie Fox, what about that element of authenticity? Does it matter or not? You know, it's so, it's so interesting, Bonnie, because, I mean, I've been in the space when it comes to social media since 2006, right? That's, that's when I started one of the first social media agencies in the world. And um, there was a time, there was a time way back in the early days where even to have someone ghostwrite a blog for you or to sponsor a blog and not be completely transparent about it, I mean, companies had huge PR shoots around some of these topics. Um, I think that we've gotten a little more moderate, though, uh, in, in the intervening time. And, and I think that's realistic because, let's be real, when a CEO writes an article that appears in Forbes magazine or a CEO writes content and even shares it uh, through, you know, through other channels with, with their colleagues, for example, they don't always write it. In fact, most of the time not. Most mm-hmm. senior executives have communications professionals that work with them to help craft the messages. They may dictate, like, here's what I want to talk about. Here are some key messages. But often, like 90% of the time, I would say, at the senior executive level, CEOs, et cetera, C-level executives, those people are not writing their own stuff. Um, I, I personally think if, if you're sharing long-form stuff on places like LinkedIn, uh, you know, Facebook, whatever, I think it's okay if someone writes it for you because that is standard and accepted in communication circles, right? It's a standard practice. It's no big deal. 
I think where it gets a little dicey is when people are responding or engaging in conversation using your name. So mm. a Twitter would be a, a great example, right? You, you, mm. you make a statement on Twitter, someone responds, and then who replies to that person, right? If it, if it merits a reply or if that's something you want to do, who replies to that person? And that's where it gets a little tricky because that is not authentic, right? And that is not the executive. Mm-hmm. And also we've certainly seen moments in time when more on a brand level, you know, inexperienced people run some of these channels and make dumb mistakes, right? Because of their inexperience, say things that are inappropriate, which of course creates bigger issues. So, I think it's it's okay with caveats around like don't let the intern run your social channel because you know they just because they're a millennial doesn't mean that they really have a, a deep deep experience in communication. Thank you, Maggie. Very interesting. I appreciate the differentiation there. I'm I'm glad you drew those lines and and I agree. Chris Boudreau, in your experience, what do you see? Do you agree with Maggie? Disagree? Um, I, I, I do agree that with a lot of what she said, I, I would maybe extend it just a little bit to say that, you know, social media, one of the key differences between social and other, other media types is that there should be a conversation, that information should flow two ways, not just one way. And so on the one hand, if I'm going to go on LinkedIn and publish a long form article and I'm a senior executive and I get some help with that, that might be considered to be, um, okay. But I certainly... You know, by analogy, I certainly wouldn't have my communications person handle all of my conversations that I have by phone, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. There are going to be mm-hmm. – they might handle some, but for the most part, if it's a phone conversation and people are calling me, they want to talk to me, and I'm not going to have my communications person impersonate me. And so by the same token, in other types of interactions in social where you're not simply posting something long form, but maybe if people comment on your post – and you want to respond to that, then maybe the communications person filters through those, um, maybe picks the, the ones that require a thoughtful response, gives those to the executive, and maybe they can decide how to respond, or you know, something like that. So I think the line where it, becomes, where it should become conversation and not just broadcast mm-hmm. should probably have a little bit of a different dynamic, because that's mm-hmm. where really the authenticity becomes an issue and... Um, you know, if, if you just have other people kind of interacting on your behalf, pretending to be you, that who would really want that, right? It's a pretty bad idea, yeah. <laughs> yep, absolutely. Kirsten, love to have your thoughts on this. You agree with any or all of what you've heard so far on this? I do agree. I think that when it comes to long-form posts, it's, it's widely accepted that those are uh, written by a communications person, and that's, you know, to be expected. Uh, when it comes to the the actual conversation, though, I agree. It needs to, if you want to be authentic, truly authentic, it needs to be the person who um, people think they're talking to, uh, to to really um, show that uh, that custom that that C level executive is involved. I mean, that's one of the reasons why we want executives to be on social is to show that human side, to really show that they're connected to. The customers um, that they understand the customer challenges and and get that you know where they're at and and to make their business better and so by having the executive actually be part of that conversation of course you can't have it all the time but you know set aside a certain amount of time in a particular week to to you know respond to those kinds of things and to those engage in that conversation that can only be good for the brand 
uh, it shows that engagement. I was just looking up a couple of examples of when um, a C-level executive has gotten involved in conversations on social. And one of the biggest ones I remember, I, I can't find the actual reference right now, but uh, one of the biggest ones I remember is uh, John Legere from Verizon getting involved in a customer service issue that happened uh, over Twitter. And, you know, the, he ended up solving the, the customer service issue. And that was huge news about how, you know, he got involved in that conversation and, and fixed the problem. Um, and I've been seeing another interesting but perhaps not as uh, relevant um, a note here about the CEOs of Sprint and T-Mobile had gotten in a fight on Twitter, um, which is interesting, mm-hmm. <laughs> but perhaps not the best use of conversation for social. Uh, but you know, the, having those, showing that they actually are really there um, is only good for the brand, and, and no matter what brand you were talking about. Interesting. I'm I'm just reading here. I Googled it and T-Mobile CEO John Legere goes on a Twitter tirade over Sprint's new cut your bill in half deal, which angered him. And he went on a Twitter rant. Very interesting. You also got into a little something with a certain candidate running on the Republican side for president. And uh, we'll just leave that one alone. Thank you very much, <laughs> Kirsten. Very good. Yes, we are definitely a non-political show and we're going to keep it that way, kids. Uh, thank you all. I, thanks for indulging my question. I thought it'd be interesting to bring that up. And, and you certainly all put up a lot of very interesting um, discussion points, and I think we all learned something. But now, Chris Boudreau, I'm looking at some of your notes, and you've got a lot of, uh, I won't say scathing, but I can see you wagging your finger at companies. Uh, you know, Come on, admit it. Wagging your finger at these laggards, these slow to adopt, slow to adapt, slow to get on the, on the bandwagon. Let me just read a couple of lines from your notes, and I'll have you take about two minutes to expand it, and we'll have Kirsten and then Maggie chime in. First of all, you say, I'm just going to link these together, Chris, forgive me. Organizations across in industries waste their social selling investments by focusing too much on selling new business. That's number one. Chris Boudreaux then says most social selling program managers are flying blind. That's number two. Number three, most social selling deployments focus on picking tools and delivering training, yet we know that training alone leads to low adoption of the tools and the desired behaviors. And number four, large organizations are trailing small and mid-sized businesses in the adoption of social selling by a very wide margin. You are wagging your finger, aren't you, Chris Boudreau? Well, you know, I'm trying to keep it interesting for you. <laughs> you and you always do, and that's why you get invited back over and over again. So talk to me. Which Are all these all important, or is there any one you want to focus on? I was most intrigued by most social selling program managers are flying blind. That bothered me the most. So you, what would you like to talk about? We can we can start there. I, I think the reality is, as a program manager myself, I mean, I, I'm, I lead the deployment internally with an EY, and the reality is that the, the analytics and the metrics that are available to folks like us um, are still, still have a long way to go. I mean, we can, we can take data out of a CRM to the extent that our organization, um, you know, tracks those kinds of things because different types of sales organizations um, may be more or less rigorous on that. Uh, but it becomes very difficult often to tie those back to activities and social channels for a lot of reasons. And, um, you know, the social platforms themselves aren't really set up for social selling per se. And so uh, we're often having to cobble together the metrics that we need to understand 
you know, how well individuals are performing in social selling or as social sellers and adopting the behaviors that we, that we hope they will and, and, those, and tying those activities back to pipeline metrics and outcomes. It's still very uh, early days uh, on the analytics side of social selling. Kirsten, why don't you jump in? Sure. <laughs> Chris has said a lot of different things there, and just wanted to focus in on one, particularly when it comes to um, the analytics side. It is a very difficult place to drive analytics out of because you're relying on the behavior of a salesperson or the behavior of an inside marketing person to um, to be able to track the activity um, of what they're doing and then thus be able to measure the return on the investment in tools and training. Um, and I, I liked what he said that, um, you know, most uh, social selling deployments focus on picking tools and delivering training, and training alone is leads to low adoption. I believe that there is absolutely some change management and behavior management that needs to go along with, and I'm hoping, I was wondering if that's actually where he was going with it. We didn't get a chance to touch on that. Um, you know, the change management piece of, of social selling is really, really important, and how we um, modify the behaviors after you've given the training, um, and this can happen with no matter what we're talking about. It doesn't have to be social selling. It could be anything. Um, you know, you go in and you do the training and you leave. Well, you might have changed the behavior for that day, but, mm-hmm. you know, unless you continue on and make – uh, concerted effort to, to change the way that they do business because of things that they have to incorporate into their daily routine um, by repetition and by changing habits uh, through various methodologies, that's how you get people to actually change the way that they do business. And I'd love to hear from Chris if that's where he was going with that or was there something else? Yeah, yeah absolutely, because even someone who believes in it and understands it is still going to feel challenged at um, – turning it into a regular habit in their busy schedule. Um, and I, you know, I've certainly experienced it myself uh, because I, I do lots of client work um, at EY and, and I, you know, I, I believe in these things wholeheartedly, but I also know that it, it takes a little while to, to fold it into your, to your regular routines and to, to always utilize it when you, when you would like to. And so that, that ongoing reinforcement is, is critical. And, and it is true that it's, this is not just a social selling uh, fact. If this is for any kind of behavioral change, it takes a while to, to change our habits. Um, and, and I think a lot of organizations, unfortunately, uh, aren't able to invest in that part of the program for various reasons. Maggie Fox, I'd love to have your POV on this. Thoughts? So... This has been a long, a long and winding conversation. To put it in a nutshell, <laughs> <laughs> with full respect, with full respect, to put it in a nutshell, is the question we're focusing on the wrong stuff when it comes to social selling? Is that the crux of, of where you guys are going, Chris? <laughs> well, I think the last topic that we were talking about was the fact that most organizations will. It, it's easy to pick tools. And it's easy to find a training vendor. Yep. Those aren't enough. Correct. Is essentially what we're saying. And, yep. and yet most organizations tend to kind of stop there. Yes. And, that, and, and in all my many years of consulting in the social space, that is 100% what, 
probably one of the biggest issues that you typically see is people are like, we bought this tool. We're, you know, <laughs> we're here. So no, 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 no. <laughs> that is a very small part of it. And in fact, focusing on behaviors, focusing on outcomes and in, ensuring that people regard tools as secondary um, is, is really fundamental to true scaling and success. And we've certainly seen this in our own organization it really, as it relates to social selling you know, really being fixated on buying lots of seats, uh, you know, when it comes to tools and platforms, buying mm-hmm. lots of seats and saying, we have all these seats, we're social selling. And what we've realized very quickly is that when you actually get into helping people understand how to use those tools and getting into the cultural part, the what's in it for me part, the change management part, that's where you start to see really serious results and you start to see these things become ingrained. And, and of course, Kirsten, that's like what your team is doing, right? That's, that's what they're, the value exactly. they're bringing to the business. So. I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. Thank you, Maggie, and thank you for uh, for getting us to focus on that. Appreciate it. Speaking of which, I, I have a great phrase here, which could have been the opening quote from Kirsten about what we've just descri- just described, if you will. She says, big ships take time to turn around. Same goes mm-hmm. for large corporations, and I think that really nails it. Now, Kirsten, I'm going to look at some of the notes here you've provided, and there's some, uh, a glimmer of hope here. I love optimism. I love a glimmer of hope. Now that we found out what companies are not focusing on, not doing enough of, not, not uh, embracing in terms of the change management and getting it part of the culture, Kirsten says, Social selling is bringing organizations together in ways they have not often been seen before. And she says, the way that marketing and sales need to work together so closely for social selling to work is one example. Marketing can't do social selling without sales. And guess what? Sales can't do social selling without marketing. Kirsten, Mm -hmm. can you expand this for us, please? Very interesting. Thanks, uh, Bonnie. Yeah, I I really feel this is one of the biggest Things that people don't get about social selling. I mean, we talk about selling, and so it, everybody says, well, it's sales. And then when it comes to the social side, they're like, oh, well, I suppose that's marketing. And and so we, it really, you know, bringing those two pieces together is, is where social selling really kind of uh, is making huge changes in the way that people are doing business. Um, you know, there's always been that traditional, you know, this is the way marketing, you know, wants to sell, wants to, to market it, and this is how sales wants to sell it, and they tend to be on opposite sides of the spectrum. Um, when you're bringing social, you know, do it, try to do social selling and, and bringing those two organizations and blurring those lines, as, as Maggie has talked about before, um, it's so interesting about how things, you know, A, it can be very uh, difficult in some ways because, you know, the, the, what marketing is trying to do and, and what sales is trying to do is not necessarily, can be, but is not necessarily the exact same thing. And how they're trying to measure it is not necessarily the exact same way. Um, and so having to, you know, come to compromises or to, you know, think outside the box and be innovative as to how we can achieve both goals um, it's, it's really an interesting time in business and how we're um, trying to, to blur those lines and bring those two organizations together. I do actually really feel that, you know, marketing can't do social selling without sales because we can't sell, uh, you know, the social media marketing out there, which is very, very different from social selling, even though most people kind of mix the two up in their heads. Um, and because social selling is much more about that individual conversation about, 
you know, engaging people and talking to people and learning about them, about them on an individual uh, business level. Um, social media marketing is about awareness and, and driving um, that kind of awareness and conversation uh, at a much more macro level than um, social selling. On the other hand, sales can't do it without marketing because marketing provides the, the content that they can drive those conversations from. And so that's how those two how, why I see that, you know, that um, statement really making sense for when it comes to social selling. Thank you, Kirsten. Before I ask Maggie and Chris to jump in, I want to bring in one more point from your notes that I think will add another dimension to this conversation. You say large global enterprises also need to account for cultural differences, not that culture would prevent social selling from working, but how it gets applied might vary region to region. Very important. Kirsten, you want to chat on that for just a moment, and then I'll have Maggie Fox comment. Sure. So, uh, what, from my own experience, um, working North America, you know, very, um, uh, you know, when, when it comes to social, very comfortable, uh, very happy to use social to have those conversations. It, it's kind of just kind of part of what we do. Uh, social is is ubiquitous across many many um, facets of our lives. Uh, and it is to a certain extent in, say, Latin America and APJ, but uh, in those cultures, there's also a far um, deeper, and maybe it's the fact that they're, um, you know, it's warmer outside. I don't know, but <laughs> where people are, are far more likely to gather in groups um, outside and, and or, you know, like in uh, dining areas outside and have those face-to-face conversations. And so they're a little bit more reluctant to have the social media because it feels far more impersonal to them where, you know, and it, maybe it's, it also is a space thing. Uh, in, in Canada and the U.S., there's a lot more space. Um, people are, you know, having to um, have long-distance conversations and they can't necessarily get in touch, fa- uh, you know, sit down face-to-face on an everyday basis. And I, I'm wondering, you know, I'm, these are just ob- observations of mine. Though we're in those warmer cultures, it's um, perhaps they're more likely to, to be able to have those conversations face-to-face. And so taking them to that off- online uh uh, forum is perhaps a little bit more foreign to them, and so they're not quite as um, eager to adopt it. But at the same time, how they apply it and how they have those conversations is also slightly different. And you have to really work with the organizations. They're not very, they're maybe not as direct when it comes to having those, you know, conversations online, that kind of thing. Thank you, Kirsten. Maggie, you're a world traveler. What do you observe? You agree with Kirsten or different? So, so I think as it relates very, so, so a general, I'll make a general, and Kirsten and I are both Canadian. So, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> we have this in common. And so I remember mm, probably like, uh, probably 2007, 2008, Canada had, Toronto had the largest number of people on Facebook of any city anywhere in the world. And it wasn't by proportion or population, like it wasn't a ratio. It was literally there were more people in Toronto on Facebook than there were in London, England, or New York City. And Canada has always led in, in social. Part of it is, and, and this is another factor, we've got to not forget about infrastructure, right? But if you don't live in a country where there is easy access either to high-speed wireless or high-speed like broadband Internet access, you're unlikely to be using the Internet as much as someone in a country that has access to that. So that is a big factor. Um, and then I think, yeah, there's, there are cultural factors too. I mean, why did Canada have so many, you know, so many people on Facebook 
was eventually overtaken by London, England, but not by much. Um, you know, why did we adopt to it so quickly? We're a country of, that is extremely spread out, and we have always gravitated towards communications technologies, like Marshall McLuhan being a great example of that, uh, Noam Chomsky. And so I think there are cultural factors. As it relates specifically to social selling, however, I think that stuff kind of goes away a little bit um, because you have very specific professional needs to be on very specific professional platforms, for example, like LinkedIn and there are others and, and other geos. Uh, and I think what happens then is it becomes less a conversation about, hey, this social media thing's kind of cool and more a conversation about, man, the more I know about the people I'm doing business with, the better I do in business. So there gets to be this intrinsic rather than extrinsic motivation to use the tools. Like, there's a lot in it for a salesperson who really figures out how to use them. And, you know, we're always generally talking about a baseline of people using these platforms to begin with. Thank you, Maggie. Very insightful. Chris Boudreau, love to get your comments on this before I, well, we have a few more minutes before we go to our predictions round, but I have one more thing from Maggie's notes I want to talk about. Chris, thought about thoughts about global and culture? Yeah, um, LinkedIn has some market data that indicates that the penetration of solar uh, social selling in small and medium-sized businesses is greater than 50%, has been for a little while. And the penetration in large organizations is less than 10%. And I think there are a lot of reasons for that, mostly based in complexity. And, you know, this kind of regional cultural difference is part of that complexity. The other thing, too, though, is if if you have different business units that have different subcultures or maybe some people sell through an inside sales model and some people are more in a relationship field sales model. You know, all of these things contribute to complexity in the organization that mean it takes a lot more thought and probably more time to deploy social selling across, you know, widely across a large organization. Um, and, and, and so working through the, all of those kinds of things, uh, you know, are, are, are part of what lead to that lower adoption figure, I think, of social selling and are, and are realities that have to, be, have to be thought about and managed through. Thank you very much. Maggie, I'd like to end this conversation on a very positive note. And you have one little, one little note here in your, uh, your points you sent me before the show called Roadmap. Maggie, would you like me to read that and then you can comment? Is that all right with yeah, you? Yeah, please okay. do. Okay. I think this is, it really crystallizes everything we've been trying to say. You say, number one, Give customers access to your social networks. That's number one. Number two, trust your employees on social selling. Number three, at the same time, provide sufficient training and insights for your employees and measure adoption and success and celebrate achievements. So I think that really takes it all the way through. Maggie, you want to comment on this roadmap? I love it. You know what, I think it, it really just follows the core principles of change management, right? Because what you we have to remember here is that we're asking people who have been successful doing something to do something in a different way. Um, and particularly when you're talking about sales executives that are very focused on weekly, monthly, quarterly results, there is no room for error. Uh, so showing people that they can achieve more and doing it in little bite-sized pieces rather than asking them to tear up what they did before and do something completely different uh, is is critical. Like you're just you're never going to get people on board unless they've been given permission to not meet to to be okay with not meeting their quota, you know, potentially. Um, and so, for, I mean, that roadmap is it's about John Cotter's principles of change management, which is a classic um, business text. 
that is taught at Harvard, um, which is basically there are steps you need to go through, and one of the most important ones is communicate, 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 and the other one is celebrate the small wins. So um, if you want to roll out a global program, you have to take those things into account. It's, it's really not about buying some tools and going, here are the keys. Enjoy. Thank you, Maggie. Now, I've saved less than one minute for each of you to do predictions, and we're just going to fast forward. I love the year 2020, as Kirsten knows, and it's really not that far away anymore because we're already in February 2016. So unless you really love some other day and time of another year, let's go for 2020. Maggie Fox, I'd love to have you tell us how will social selling changing the large enterprise change? What will be different if we met again in the year 2020 and had this discussion? I can give you, oh, less than a minute. Let's say 45 seconds. Predictions, Maggie Fox, go. I'm not even going to take that much time. I, I think we aren't even going to talk about social selling as a thing. It, it, I, sometimes I don't even know why we talk about it now, because it's just selling. It's selling, but better. More information makes you better. Um, and, and what else is going to be going on in 2020? Every time I think about this, I'm wrong. So, you know, we're, all, we're going to be, clearly, we're going to be in flying cars replicating food <laughs> in our replicators. On our Maggie, street. that's why we that's why we launched a new series last week, The Future of Cars with Game Changers. You're going to have to be a guest on that show and talk to us about flying cars. Thank you, a.k.a. the Jetsons. We're channeling you, what's his name, George Jetson. Here we go. George. He just keeps coming back in our, in our conversation. I don't know why. He just never went away. Chris Boudreaux, I'll give you uh, three sentences. Predict 2020. What's going to be different about social selling in the large enterprise? I think by 2020, it'll be normal for marketing automation platforms to uh, give credit to organic social interactions because they don't today, and they're missing a lot. So whether okay. that's a salesperson, if a salesperson publishes content and someone clicks that and goes to a landing page and that creates a lead, then the salespeople as a channel, as a marketing channel, should get credit for that. Or if the corporate marketing account tweets, um, you know, SAP has the best software in the world, and a CIO retweets that, then that person's lead score should change. But today they don't. And I think all of that will be different by then. Thank you, Chris. I have to stop you and give 30 seconds to Kirsten. Kirsten, predictions go. You know the drill. <laughs> Absolutely. So I think by 2020, uh, large enterprises will have finally adopted uh the idea of social selling and agreeing with Maggie, it probably won't be called social selling anymore. It will just be the way that we do business. I like that. I think that's where we're heading in words of wisdom. Maggie Fox, such a pleasure to have you. I hope you'll come back on any of our series. We have 12 series in live production now. Chris Boudreau, hope everything is fine with you. I know you had a little personal health emergency in your family. I'm glad everything worked out and glad you could join us. Kirsten Boylow, just keep sending me great topics and great guests because that's what it's all about. Shout out to our engineers. I think we worked with Matt, Michael, and Justin. Three it took to get us through this on the Business Channel team. Thank you. And in this time slot on Tuesdays, 10 a.m. Eastern, you can always find one week or the other, Social Selling with Game Changers, then the Future of the Future with Game Changers, the week after the Future of Cars with Game Changers, and the week after Extended Supply Chain of the Future with Game Changers. We're changing the game. Here's my call to action. Fasten your seatbelt. What are you waiting for? Go out and be a game changer today. Bonnie D. Graham signing off. Have a good one. Bye-bye. Thanks again for tuning in to Social Selling with Game Changers, presented by SAP. The best-run businesses run SAP. 
To keep the conversation going, tweet your questions and comments to Twitter hashtag SAPRADIO. Please join host Bonnie D. Graham again Tuesdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Business Channel. We wish you a positively game-changing week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.